strength like no other reaches to me. Father God, we are so thankful for who you are, for what you're doing in the world and in us, Lord. And it's easy to to look at the media and get bogged down by the atrocities that we see um, and by the wayward souls, Lord, and, and all that that is. But Father God, what... You are our hope. You are our strength. And what that is, what that looks like, Lord, is that you are shaping a people. You're building us up. Just like in Nehemiah, Lord, we didn't need the wall. You didn't need to build the wall. You were building the people. You were building unity. Father God, we trust in that today. We trust in you, our circumstances, whatever it is that's raised up against you, Lord, we submit those things to you, Father God. Jesus, you've been so good to us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. The standard was perfection. The bar was so high we could never attain it. So you did it for us. And now you just want to enter into relationship with us. Jesus, we're in awe. So that's what we're here for today, Lord. Your name be glorified. You be lifted up. You are our peace. You are our strength. You are our hope. And we rest in that. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, Jesus. You guys can sit down. And we're heavy on this side of the room. If we had a game of Red Rover or something, it'd be team domination over here. I'm really sorry, Lacey. <laughs> um, just a few announcements for you guys this morning. Get us rolling. Uh, tonight, Sunday night service, 6 p.m., Drake Road Christian Church. Just a time that we got a, a lot to uh, corporate prayer, just seeing what the Lord wants to do with the body. So um, Drake Road Christian Church right there at Stover and Drake. Uh, join us in, in seeing what the Lord wants to do with the corporate body. We have a women's ministry lift progressive dinner. Uh, if you guys uh, know Lindsay Easton, who's not in her seat right now, or Kayla Booten, who's escaping right now, uh, you can go and see those two about this uh, progressive dinner. It's going to be two different locations and a three-course dinner. It'll be this Tuesday, July 26th from 6 to 9 p.m. So uh, see those two ladies about um, getting some tickets and getting organized for that. We have a membership meeting coming up on August 7th. Uh, a lot going on with the ASIS right now. We've got a wee Irishman speaking at uh, ASIS Colorado Springs this morning, and we've got a building fundraiser that's going on. God's doing some awesome, awesome things with the direction of ASIS and his church in general. So just want to keep you guys updated on, on what the Lord's doing with our part on that. So August 7th, just keep that on your guys' radar. That'll be right after second service. Also, related to that, we have uh, a number of, if you guys are interested, membership bulletins in the back. Uh, if you guys are interested in that, again, just talk to Beck, talk to myself or any of the elders or staff members, and we can kind of fill you in on, on what that kind of entails. So, 
We have the bash coming up here on August, let's see, it's 28th right there, yeah, 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., and really just all that is is going to be a time of awesome fellowship. Um, I'm going to just rain cornhole all day, that's going to be kind of what it is, and a barbecue, so um, if you guys are interested in helping out with that at all, we are looking for individuals who might be interested in serving in any capacity, whether it's uh, food that you might be able to bring, or if you want to help organize, we've got a number of, of sort of needs related to that, um, so if you guys are interested in helping out with that, uh, we have the phone number right there or the email address for contacting the front desk for ESIS, so um, yeah, there's that. Um, my last little one here, the evangelism ministry is doing starting their fundraiser for the, uh, the building campaign, and I'm going to have a PowerPoint come up, and you guys can kind of just roll that while I'm talking through this, but we're coming alongside uh, Manhattan Auto Spa, so if you guys have any vehicle needs, cosmetics specifically, so we do interior detailing, exterior detailing, we do clear bra, we do window tinting, we can put vinyl on there. If you guys have seen my car, some of those of you that know me, it's like this two-tone, goofy-looking thing, but it's like black and silver. I think it's super cool, so, um, but yeah. Yeah, we do engine degreasing, headlight restores, and all manner of these things. 50 cents of every dollar you spend is going to the building fund. So we really want to thank Dan Burnt and Manhattan Auto Spa for being willing to step into that for us. It's a pretty awesome opportunity. So if you have friends or family members who have been, like, you know, putting it off, there's, like, an inch of pet hair that's just been sitting in there for a while, now's the time to that you can kind of get those two birds with one stone and put that 50 cents of every dollar into the building fund. So that's all I've got for you guys. Why don't you go ahead and stand up and say hi to somebody you don't know. The worship team will bring us back together.
love the cross. I love the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, it meant that we could come before him with boldness. Because when that veil was torn in two, it gives us this access. It gives us this moment, these moments that we live for. That his presence comes and hovers and we can feel it. Aren't you so thankful for Jesus? Aren't you so thankful for the price that he paid on the cross to pay for our sin and give us mercy and grace? But more than that, I love that he wanted us. He wants us. He loves to be with us. Will you lift your hands for a moment? I just want you to tune into that for a moment of just saying, God, I thank you for the cross. no one like you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We press into you tonight, Lord. We love your presence. We love you. We love you.
Friends and family of Jesus, we're going to do some more worship. But not before I retune the string, because it's not going to work well if we don't have in-tuned guitars, right? It's always the fun thing about guitars, is they change their own tune. So you know what, this morning, we're going to worship from the, the place of joy. Um, Last week, Pastor Beck shared from the word um, in Nehemiah, where it simply says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. And what a strength it is, amen? That when when trials come and when the sky just starts falling, that that joy is, is an actual strength for our souls. And that is something we can praise God for, amen? So let's worship together this morning. Sing My Redeemer Lives. I know He rescued my soul. His blood has covered my sin. I believe. I believe. My shame is taken away. My pain is hidden in His name. I believe. I believe. I'll raise the banner. I'll raise the banner. My Lord has conquered the grave. My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. I know He rescued. I know He rescued my soul. His blood has covered my sin. I believe. joy that you put in our hearts, <laughs> the joy that that is a strength to us, that when we, we enter into the battlefield of, of ministry and the battlefield of, of life, God, that, that joy is, <laughs> is what other people see and, and it makes them want to draw near to you, God. So I pray this, 
this week that we would we would have that joy and it would just permeate from us that other people would see that joy and want to know where it comes from I pray the joy God in our hearts would be used to reach other people receive this worship Lord that's what we're here to do God we're not here to to just hoorah and then leave we're here to worship you and and, and give you the honor and glory you deserve so that we can go out and, and share the good news with others that's what it's all about God help us do that let's sing this you stood before creation you stood before creation eternity in your hand you spoke the earth into motion my soul now to stand
stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. And I'll stand, my soul, Lord, to you surrender. All I am is yours, and all I am is yours. We identify ourselves in like a hundred ways. You ever notice that? My name's Beck. I'm a man. I'm an athlete. I'm a fan of certain teams. I'm a July baby. I'm an Eastern. I'm an Italian. And on and on and on it goes. The weight of where we find our identity is in our own definition. We define ourselves by our money or our whether we're not we're mothers. And, and you guys are, are, are those things. But when it whittles itself down, where, 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 where the weight of who we are is really pressed forward. The Bible says, or uh, 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 C.S. Lewis makes this great description. He's this famous author. He says that at the end of our life, we will stand before God in our truest selves. He says that our flesh will be taken off and thrown on the heap with the rest, and that, and that the soul of a man will stand. And he goes on to say that some who were in wheelchairs will look like giants. And some who had the veneer of gods will look like shriveled little boys. See, the truth is, all that we are is His. Out of the dust of the earth, He formed us like a piece of clay. And then He stuffed us full of grace. This famous band I like called Hillsong, you might have heard of them. New album come out called called Dust and Grace. I can't even hear it because every time I even look at the title, I just start to weep. Man. That's all we are. We're, we're worthless and we're His, so we're extraordinarily valuable. Man, what a great thing that is. Can we just pray about that this morning? Lord, we just thank you that uh, we have no worth in our skill or our talent or our background or our lineage or our bloodline or our, our intellect or our ability. We are not defined by our bank account. All we are is... All we are is yours, Lord. And so humbly we come and because we're yours... You say, God, that we can stand at the foot of your altar, right at the base of your throne, and it says we can approach it with confidence, Lord. I may not be much, but I'm His. We may not have a lot, Lord, but we're Yours. And so, Lord, we just thank You for that truth this morning, and that's why we come, and that's why we pray, and that's why we're here. And it's in Jesus' name. We all pray, and everybody said, Amen, and Amen. You guys can be seated. I gotta get set up here. My name is uh, Beck. Alex is on vacation. Welcome to ESUS again. 
I'm excited to be here. A couple of uh, of announcements, uh, just real quick before we get started. I want to highlight the back table, if I can, for just a second. There's a bunch of stuff back there, information about ESIS, about ministries that we provide, about ways to get connected with us. We're also all over the intraweb, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We have a website, eassisfc.com. If you're looking for information on how to get connected with us or contact us or receive prayer or get involved, uh, there's a ton of information back there. There's also some resources, stuff for you to take uh, with you to work or Beijing or wherever it is that you have to go next. So uh, we just uh, thank you for stopping by and uh, I'm excited to get started. Today's message is called, As It Is Written. Nehemiah eight thirteen through 18, a study in right and righteousness. Before we get started every week, uh, I've been telling you guys a little bit about my vacation time. My wife, who is in the back, and I went on a, on a road trip for our, our vacation. It was awesome. This is probably getting old to you, but it's not for me. So you're going to have to deal with it. Uh, we went through 15 states, 4,500 miles. We had way too small of a car for me. Uh, I tested the very limits of its speed. It was awesome. This is uh, Lindsay in Nebraska at her family farm. They own about 3,000 uh, acres of that. We went to her farm. It was one of my favorite portions of the trip. We saw skyscrapers and, and, and history in DC and, and we went and saw my mom. You're supposed to really like seeing your mom. Uh, but maybe looking at fields of corn was my, was my favorite portion. You know, artists, they name their pieces of work. I don't, I don't really like that, but if I could name this picture, the Lord spoke to me through it, uh, sometime back and I, I, uh, I just fond, fondly look at it. It's, I would call it grace and the call. Uh, see, I'm a pastor, and I don't know if I'm any good at it. And there's a massive field of people, thank you, that we're supposed to take care of. The Bible says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And sometimes I take a look at myself, in all honesty, if I had to confess and think, man, what am I doing? I'm just going to go get a job in IT or be a coach or just something more practical. This is, I'm in an ocean of people and God has placed this great responsibility on me and I don't have what it takes. And then out of nowhere, I get this gift uh, called my wife. My wife has a name. Her name is Lindsay. And... More and more, she's just a reminder of me, to me, that God is willing to give me stuff I don't deserve. There's this great picture in Revelation of, of, of essentially of a wedding scene, and it, it, long story short, the, this bride who Christ has been waiting for is, is, is walking down the aisle, essentially is the language, and the bride's looking at her groom, and she knows she's getting something she doesn't deserve. And that's the definition of grace. That's that's what we get in Christ. And so we don't have the capability to to pick up all the corn in that field. That's one side of his field. That's 3,000 acres. That's a lot of corn. Overwhelming. It's an ocean. What are we supposed to do? And then there's just this little reminder all the time that, that he will give you something that you don't deserve to get you through the work. And so I would call it the grace uh, and the call, plus that smile, isn't it just so, so cute? Brings me to this conclusion, man, you guys need to know this this morning, and this is not, 
to be more deeper and emotional than I should be, but it, I am honored to do this. I am. This past week, I got to go to prisons. I had to say sorry to a member of our congregation. I, people staying with us. So I had to work on a message. I got to learn Greek. I got to correct somebody. I got to, I got to be a pastor from end to end. And it's messy, man. People are messy people. And we're in a hotel and not in a building and our office is upstairs and my ankle hurts and it's all, it's all mixed up and I love it. And I just want to say thank you to you for letting me get to do this all the time. And I pray that, um, you guys see grace sufficiently in my life, not my own talent or ability. But I truly do love my job in all of its quirky ways. And though it's a, a big field out there, uh, God is able. Amen? Okay, so let's just talk about the Bible now that I've gotten through my sappy story. Uh, the, Bible, the message today is called, As It Was Written. We're in Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 13. And let me catch you up real quickly. Nehemiah is, is from the nation of Jerusalem, but he's never been there. He's under this king, this Persian king in a faraway land, and through the Lord's help, he gets uh, the, the release to come to Jerusalem and rebuild this wall. This is God's three-part reconstruction or redemption, restoration of God's people, of his people. First, he built the temple. We hear about that, Ezra. Then we, he builds the houses around him. For a while there, it wasn't in that order. Now, for about 60 years, they live just like this. They have a temple, they have houses, but they have no wall. See, they're, they're, they're worshiping God, and they're being blessed by it, but they're not a nation yet, and more specifically, they're not a family. Nehemiah comes, and in 52 days, they construct this, this massive wall around Jerusalem where they can get their national identity back. There's a difference between being inside the wall and being outside the wall. Does that make sense? They have this amazing moment in chapter 7 where Ezra, now that the wall is constructed, they open up the Bible, the first five books, the Pentateuch, and they start to read it. In fact, they read the whole thing. And this this people, this kind of hoodlums and the, the messy history and a bad background and a, and, a, and a report card of not honoring God, they all stand and hear the word, many for the first time. That took place on the first day of the seventh month. That's important. Chapter 8, the second half of chapter 8, verses 13, starts in the second day of the seventh month. So that was all yesterday. It was a big day. Five hours of hearing the word, then a bunch of sermons, kind of getting all uh, put back together. Now we're going to talk about the second day. Sound good? We'll start in verse uh, 13, and we'll roll through 18. If you don't have your Bible with you, please be sure to, to look up here. Bibles in your laps are cooler anyway. Then on the second day, verse 13, the heads of the fathers of the households of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might in, uh, gain insight into the words of the law. 14, they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the seventh, the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated pro- a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Everybody say, as it is written. First service was better, I'm just saying. 
16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in the courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square, the water gate and in the square, the gate of Ephraim. 17. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. 18. And they read from the book of the law of God daily, and from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. I have four or five points I want to make this morning. My hope is, is that I can... We can kind of connect them together. I want to take each of these separate pieces and we're going to do some smooshing. Because I believe that this scripture isn't only for these people at the time, but it's for us today. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump right back up to verse 13 and, and, and go through this scripture. Now I want you to be careful. Whenever you hear somebody speak or preach about the word, it is very easy as a pastor to read a scripture and then talk about what I want to talk about. It's subtle. We can make little connections here and there. The problem is, is we place the emphasis on what the man, the pastor, thinks. Pastors are men too, believe it or not. I want us to get to this truth. We can get something new by doing something old. We have technological advances out the wazoo. In Chicago, I wanted to wave down a taxi, you know, just like they did in the movies. No one does that. Everybody just Ubers stuff. Man, I press buttons all day long. I want to do the thing. We found better ways to do everything. We've moved from tiny houses to big mansions, and now, I don't know if you've heard about this, but like tiny little houses are back in the way, in the, in the go again. You have like the entire world in the palm of your hand. We've gotten better technologically. Now, to do so, we've had to take the old things and, and do away with them. Let me prove it to you. Who's ever heard of the term floppy disk? Yeah, everybody under the age of 25 is like, a what? Is that a cartoon? That was the it. Man, 15 years ago, that was, whoo, you were advanced. Your little floppy disk in your back pocket. Don't bend it up too much, man. I mess everything up. It was awesome. Now the floppy disk is a punchline. CDs were the thing. My wife, you know, I'm a big fan of music, huge. Couldn't play an instrument if my life depended on it, but I love to observe uh, music. By the way, my wife and I are going to Hillsong tomorrow in Denver. If you're interested, just buy a ticket and see you down there. Birthday present for me. Loved it. But at Best Buy, you ever walked into Best Buy? What was the first thing you saw? Rows and rows of CDs. You remember that? I used to go there all the time. It was like a big thing. The music would come out that day, and you'd have to, man, i got to get to the store. i got to get this CD first day. I can't even find the CD section at Best Buy anymore. Now it's like iPhone cases, right? Smack dab in the middle. It's crazy. We believe in order to advance or to be pioneers, we have to leave some stuff behind. That is the truth for some things, but not for this thing. There is not a better way to govern and guide your life than by the Word of God. Guess how it works? The floppy disk, you, had to, you actually had to, guys, you had to put it in. There was no cloud. 
Nobody understands the cloud. You had to put the disc inside of the tower. You had to press it in. In order for the word to work, you have to read it. You have to press into it every day. People think, read? Can I, can I pick that up on Audible or something? Isn't there a newer, better way? And so when we find a problem today, instead of saying, okay, how in history have we solved this? We say, let's invent something or design an app for that thing to fix that thing. I'm going to tell you this. The destruction of the man's soul will never be fixed by some current technological advancement. Period. These men, these great leaders, we'll talk about it in verse 13, got something new by doing something old. They, they, they're changing these people. They're directing this family, this nation of Israel, by going back to the word that was written. We think the Old Testament can't be for us because we don't know the names. We can't pronounce them. The areas are, are, are sort of areas we've never been before on the map. We couldn't find them if we wanted to. What's the difference between Israel and Syria? And where's Jerusalem? And nobody knows. It doesn't make sense. Let's go to Psalms. Let's get the word of the day. I'm telling you this. There are answers you've been searching for in every crevice and corner of your life that sit right in these scriptures here. Let me put it to you like this. Maybe God is so awesome and he is so large that the people in Jerusalem in this time, in Nehemiah's time, right? He was helping them, but in the same time, he was writing this word for us here. That his word is eternal. Who wrote the word? God or man? Watch this. This is cool. The answer is yes. Oh, some Bible scholars are like, no, God wrote the word. Well, no, a, a man pinned the word. He physically did it, I promise. Well, then it was messed up because if man wrote the word, he's flawed and it's a, it's a mess and God is a superstition. Watch. Was Jesus man or God? Yes. He's been doing this man and God thing for quite some time. Who is the word? In the Bible, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The very power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in your mortal body and it also sits in your lap. The whole thing. So it's important that we get involved into this. It's a sign of great leadership. Here, let me just uh, read this to you. Then on the second day, verse 13, the heads of the fathers of the households and all of the people and the priests, the Levites, gathered to Ezra, who was the scribe and the priest at the time, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. These people just constructed a six-story wall around the entire nation in 52 days. Nobody had a construction license. No one was an architect. They just figured it out. Then they read the Bible for five hours in a row. I think you're ready for a break. If you're a leader, man, I'm in for a bonus. I need to rest. I'm doing a pretty good job. I've made a nation out of people that have no idea what nationality is. I've constructed a wall, and now they're all standing like soldiers. Pretty good. These leaders are good leaders because they're going to the eternal thing for their next thing. They're finding themselves on their face early in the morning for people that aren't themselves. You want to be a good dad? Pray for your kids every day. 
Find yourself in the word. You want to be a good CEO, a good businessman. You want to be an honorable leader in your community. Get on your knees. Find yourself in the word. Learn, learn where Ephraim is and why they called it the water gate. We think, oh, those facts aren't going to help me. God's eternal word will help, I promise. There's a difference between a good leader and a good looking leader. And a good leader often finds himself out of the spotlight in the basement with his face on the ground, studying and toiling over a word. You guys want to change the world? The world changer is sitting in the palm of, or in, right in, in the palm of your hand if you have a tablet, those of you technological people. I'm not against you, by the way. I hope you don't think that. Or in the Bible that sits in your lap. That's how we do this. We can do something new by doing something old. Today's nation's in a bad place. It's crazy. We got cops just shooting people. And then we have people just shooting cops. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about order and honor. And how every sin issue is an honor issue. But beforehand, as we, as we backtrack, I want to prove how the word can fix our very problem today. We thought we solved uh, racist problems in the world. You want to know the truth? We're not even close. People are hurting people. Now watch this. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. This is old stuff. This is way back in the day. King Solomon, you've never heard of him. He was a cool dude. He's praying to the Lord, and the Lord responds to him about his nation. Let me say that again. A Christian, the time a follower of God, prays to God about his nation. And then this is God's reply. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Let me show you the word working here. And God says this, and my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Uh, I'm running a little long on this point. Maybe we'll have to skip one, but come back next week. You'll get it. Watch this. The healing of our nation is directly related to the humility of the Christian. I'm going to say it again. The healing of our nation is directly related to the humility of the Christian. And people think, ah, man, some of you are nodding just because you don't want to be the bad Christian. I'm not saying that. That's what he's saying. That's what the eternal, never-changing God is saying. That if we would humble ourselves, not get up in front of the spotlight or find a stage or some Twitter platform and say what's wrong with everybody. Every Christian says they're sad on Facebook. I'm just saddened. I'm just, man, you know what? We're all sad. I get it. But the Christian man who brings himself low, that humbles himself before God and confesses his sin, saying, man, this is my problem. This has to do with me. If you have a prejudice that's maybe deeply inside of you or you have a bad history or whatever and your, your result is, man, I'm just going to cover it up. It's not going to work. God can only change a man and his heart. And we humble ourselves, we confess our sin. Guess what he said he'll do for us? I'll heal the land. I'll take the broken thing and I'll make it new again. Let me give you an example. Jesus, did he get up on his high horse? And he went to the very, very bottom. And guess what happened to all of us? We get healing because of his humility. 
He gets brought low by His stripes. We are healed. You want to change this nation? You want to make it all right again? I want to transform this city more than I've ever wanted anything in my whole life. I want Christ to reign throughout all of Fort Collins. 150,000 people saying the same thing to the same God. Man, I want that deep inside of me. I'm not going to get it by ever giving a great message. I'm, I'm paid. <laughs> air quotes, heavy air quotes there. <laughs> by this church... Not to be an eloquent speaker. Anybody can be eloquent. You can go find any John on the street. He'll figure it out for you. But to be a good leader. To be the old, to do the old thing to get something new. Johnny is one of the greatest leaders I've ever met. His name is Johnny Square. He started this church years ago and he said this to me. Man, it's bothered me forever. If it's new, it isn't true. I'm like, nah, man. It's, this iPhone's new and it, it, it's the truth. <laughs> He's saying that everything in the word that is the truth, that will stand the width of time, is already in here. And these are the things we need to value. And these are the things we need to grab a hold of. And these are the things that need to have our mind and attention and time. Because they're never going away. Make sense? Okay, I think I beat that horse well into the ground. So that's the first point. Verse 13, getting something new by doing something old. We all right? It's 174 degrees in here. I don't know if anybody else feels that. Girls are covered up, but I'm, whew, I need a rag. A little dabble here. Okay. Uh, as it is written is the second point. This is the, this is a scripture here that makes me squirm in the pew. As it is written. Let me, let me explain. This is, uh, 14, 15, and 16. They're saying that the word, they're reading the word, and they realize that there's this thing called the Feast of Booths. They're like, man, wait, have you ever done the Feast of Booths? Nah, I ain't never done the Feast of Booths. What's the Feast of Booths? Well, the day before, they'd read the whole Pentateuch, so they knew what it was. They said, you know what? We, we are these people. We've heard this word. Why don't we just do what it says? So they put out this proclamation. They sent out the tweet to everybody, and they said, meet back here because we're going to do this, this feast. The Feast of Booths was commanded by God in Deuteronomy 31, and then you'll see it again in Numbers 29. Okay, this is cool history stuff here. The nation of Israel... They're in captivity for 40 years. You remember that part? Moses on the mountain and all the rest. When they cross the Jordan, they're restored. They cross the Jordan. God commands sometime later that they celebrate the Feast of Booths. The first thing they do, the first feast after they cross the Jordan is to remember where they came from. Is to recall that they didn't have homes, that the word, that the, the dwelling place of God was in a tent, not in a temple, a tabernacle. And he said, so I want you to move from your homes. I have blessed you. I want you to leave that blessing. I want you to build a tent. And I don't want you to mourn. Man, you remember when it was so hard for these people? I want you to celebrate that you were once this way and now you're over here. Does that make sense? That's the Feast of Booths. To be celebrated in the seventh month of every year. You want to know something cool? After God restores them in Nehemiah, what's the first celebration they have? Feast of Booths. When God restores Israel at the end of time in tribulation, what does he say the first festival he wants them to celebrate is? The Feast of Booths. It's a cool thing, the eternal God. He's not going to change. He's got this whole pattern in mind. So, there's a couple points I want to make here. So, we understand what Booths is? We're good? Okay, I wasn't going to help you out anyway. You can figure it out. There's a difference between followers and sons. We ask a discipleship question here. If God came down and said to you, I want you to be a disciple, 
what would that be? Then he asks you a second question. What if God said, I want you to go make a disciple? Where would you start? We've studied the last couple of years going through every scripture that has the word disciple in it or Christ talking about discipleship. There's discipleship examples and, and classes and methods all around the world. People have written books on it and all the rest. I just decided, well, what's the Bible say about it? Let's go do that. The Bible says to be a disciple, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily, then you can follow him. The Bible says that you must abide in him and he in you, then you can ask anything you wish. By doing so, you shall prove to be my disciple. The Bible says you need to hate your father and mother, brother and sister, wife, yes, even your very life. Watch this. Without so, you cannot be my disciple. The Bible says then you must love the same way he loved. As I have loved you, so love the world. That by doing so, you prove to be my disciple. How do I hate and love at the same time? Discipleship is hard. This, then he says this. If you want to be a disciple, you must go make a disciple of the world. Of every nation. He says, this is what being a disciple is like. Now, go make them yourself. He doesn't say, let me make them. He says, I'll make them, just go walk around. He says, I'm going to use you to make them. Discipleship is an important question. It's a distinction between a follower. We would have called it a follower. No, we call it a disciple. There's a distinction between being a follower and being a disciple. To be a disciple of God, watch this, is to become a son. Not just adopted in the sense that I'm legally his, and you are if you're, a, if you're a Christian. But I can be a son, and then I can act like a son. That's a disciple. When I become a member of a family of God, he invites me to get into his family business. And I get to be a part of what he does. These people here are moving from being followers to being sons. Jesus was interested in sons. Sons get involved in the family business. Our family history is a mess in Christianity. But it's also full of grace. What I mean by that is that he hasn't abandoned us to be... We're not not a part of his family because we've made a mistake. He's saying, you're still a part of my family. You ever had a... Who's had the crazy uncle or the crazy sister? My sister is... She has been outside of her mind. Not my, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, Lexi, that's my sister's name. We're Eastons. We don't do that. I'm saying, you're a human being. What is wrong with you? You can't do that. But she's still my sister. And as I've encouraged her that she's still my sister, guess what she started to do? Act less and less like a crazy person and more and more like a crazy family member. She's been involved in the family business. Watch this. Acts chapter 2 is one of the greatest scriptures uh, in all of the Bible. Man, I love it. They're all great, but this one's awesome. Because it's about the birth of the church. These people went crazy. They started, they, they used the word, devoted themselves to another man. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I don't want to do that. We don't like that. They sold their house and gave to any as would have need. It said that every night they went from house to house and hung out together and made dinner and, and spent time together. Not just Sunday and then see again next Sunday. It said that they loved each other. And watch this. Every day, more and more people started coming to these houses. Three people walk in my house. I'm looking at my wife like, what are they doing here? I have to do this on Sunday. I don't want to do this all day long. Man, there's something wrong in my heart with that. 
Because how can I want and pray for what happened in the Acts 2 church, right? The early church, but not do the things they were doing. Let me put it to you like this. How can I beg God to be a member of the family? And then he says, okay, this is what the family does. And me be like, ah, man, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's a little too much. My whole house? You want me to sell my house? I don't know. <laughs> you sure? I'm busy. We can't have people come live with us. I got a lot of stuff going on. The Acts 2 church has an expectation associated with it that you would do what it does. Does that make sense? How can we have this portion that we see in this part of the Bible and not do what it says to do? We've been sinking the meaningful and looking in all the wrong places. What the early church was doing, or sorry, what early, what the early church was doing without doing it doesn't make sense. It doesn't equal each other. Okay. We look like a healthy family and sons in order to do that. We have to abide by this classical biblical notion that you will reap what you sow. If you put this in the ground, I'm just going to do what it says. It says this in Acts chapter 2, then I'm going to do that. Then you will sow that. That's what God says. His eternal law says so. Let me make a point. If you are feeling unloved, you know what God says to do? Go love somebody. That's messed up, man. Talk about working out of your emptiness. You feel hated? Go love somebody else. If you don't have any money right now, I'm telling you, this is not a, don't, you don't have to give it to the church. Don't get it all into that. Go give some money away. Because you will get back sevenfold what you give out. That's what the word says. Does that make sense? Okay, doing it as it is written may be that simple. That we can change the world just by doing this. Mother Teresa is the famous woman. She says, you guys know who Mother Teresa is. I don't have to explain that to you. She was asked by this reporter one time, what are you going to do next? You've just built this massive global ministry. What, what's next for you? And she says, whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure the reporter's like, all right, whatever. <laughs> you know, just take, take him back a little bit. He says, well, what do you mean? She says, whatever he says, I will do that next. Let me, let me paint a picture for you. We take a step because God said so. And then we say, God, what do we do next? And he tells us to take another step. And then we say, God, what do we do next? And then we take another step. And we think that's crazy religiosity. But if you ask him about every decision, about every word, about every thought, guess what all of a sudden you're doing? Praying without ceasing. Exactly what the Bible says to do. And it's like, oh man, that, I don't have time to pray. I have to sleep. I have to talk to my wife. How can I pray without ceasing? What if we just ask, Lord, what, according to what it's written, what do we do now with the next step? I'm going to do what he says now with my next step. And whatever he says and wherever he says to go and whatever he says to say or whatever he says to do, I'm just going to do that. First thing it's going to do is wreck Christian culture the way we know it today. And the second thing it's going to do is the very power that's in this Bible as it is written, we are starting to see, we will see here and now. Because we're doing what it says. Maybe it's as simple as doing as it was written. Okay, I've beaten that point down too. We're, we're going to run out of time here. Holy cow. Okay, sticks or stones. Cool title. Even cooler message. 
17, the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. They hadn't done this for 116 years. No one had ever, they stopped uh, fulfilling this tradition. And there was great rejoicing. They asked after they crossed the Jordan, the nation of Israel, they celebrated the, the festival um, for some time. And then, as you know, the nation started to fall away from God again. And he sent them prophets. Most of the Old Testament is, is him saying, look, guys, you keep doing this, you're going to get in trouble. Then what happens? They go into their second captivity for 70 years. Jerusalem is decimated. 70 years later, they come back, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the houses, and finally they rebuild the wall. The question to you is, which is the greater accomplishment? The six-story wall made out of stones or the tents in their backyard? See, the wall made them a people. The wall unified them. The wall put them on the same page. The wall showed them that collectively they could do anything together. But the tents made them a family. They were followers for the wall and they were sons in the tent. By the way, dads, if you haven't camped with your kids in the backyard, get her done. That's the best fun. Turn the sprinklers on. Scare them. It's a good good time. That's what they're doing. So it says that they built tents all over the place. They put them on the top of their roofs. They put them in the courthouse of the church. They put them all around the wall. There's just these tents made out of sticks everywhere. And people are rejoicing. These are a people that have lived in tents for hundreds of years beforehand. They were slaves in captivity twice. It would be like telling an inmate, hey man, I know you're out. I know you're feeling good. But just to honor the Lord and where you've been, I'm going to put you in bars for a week and a half. He's going to say to you, no, I'm free for a reason. I have this house. I'm going to go wherever I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. They didn't put themselves back in bondage. They're not saying I want to lessen myself. They're being a part of what the family does. They're stepping back in to not just being a follower of Christ, but to being his child. Jesus is going to ask you if you will listen to do crazy things. To build tents on your roof when you have a perfectly good house right underneath you. You're going to say, without the AC? No refrigerator? I mean, this is Jerusalem, man. It's hot. He's looking for people that will do it just as as it is written because that's what makes them children of God. You are adopted into him by faith. There's no question about that. You are saved. I'm not talking about our salvation. What I'm talking about is our participation in what he's doing today. He may ask you to pray for certain people or say certain things. He may ask you to deny. He may ask you to get up in the early in the morning and read your Bible. Oh, but Lord, I need my eight hours. Every magazine I've ever read says eight hours is the cut. Man, I need that. I need my REM sleep. By doing what he does, we become a member of his, of his family. And members of his family are far better off than those who create success on their own. By those who get their REM sleep. Does that make sense? Okay. The wall made them unified. Made them a people. But the tent made them a family. It says the entire assembly. All of these people. Those inside the wall and those outside of the wall. Who were of the nation of God. Come together and participate in this holiday. They haven't done for years. 
looks crazy religious, and it also looks crazy beautiful, just like our crazy family. Now, it says that he rejoiced. The word rejoice is simcha. Simcha means the joy that God has. We, his joy, then we re it up again and we have joy. He rejoiced. The word simcha is never present before this uh, chapter in the Bible. The entire construction of the wall never caused God to rejoice. Said it pleased him. Said it, uh, uh, it said that he was uh, that, that, that Nehemiah was obedient to do so. I love that verse as well. But he rejoiced when they put tents up in their backyard. This minor little achievement with sticks was the thing that made him happy. Not all of you are going to need platforms with microphones. Some of you are going to need coffee shops where you just find somebody and you devote their life, your life, to them. Some of you are going to need just uh, maybe a nursing home down the street where you go to pray for people. Some of you are going to have to walk your, your uh, streets late at night and pick up trash. We think that these small little stick tents in our backyard aren't going to make a difference. And I'm telling you, if it, it is, if it is written, if you'll listen to God and just obey, it makes him rejoice. There's another time when the word rejoice is used in a different context in the Hebrew. Simcha is very present in the book of Isaiah when it says that it pleased God to crush his son. He simchat. He was rejoicing. <clears throat> now I'm going to get teared up. When, when, his, when he crushed his only son on our behalf. Why? Because Christ was devoted and obedient to his father. No matter how crazy it seemed. No matter how painful it was going to be. It caused God to rejoice. These people are building sticks in their backyard. How crazy it seems and how painful it may be not to live in the air conditioning or whatever. And it caused God to rejoice because they were obedient. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, let's move on to the last piece here. Right and righteousness. It's the subtitle for today's message. And a, a kind of a moving story that happened to me this week. So they read from the book of God daily. Important note. From the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast for seven days, which is true in De uh, Deuteronomy as well. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, meaning no work. And they, according to the ordinance, which is in the law. These guys look like crazy, Bible-thumping, religious folk. Sometimes, to obey Christ is painful, not because of what you're doing, but because of what the world says about you. What your family thinks, you're crazy, or people want to send you to counseling, or, man, you've, you've changed. You've, you've lost your way. I don't know how to encourage you in that other than to say, you can come here and be encouraged. That's what the family of God is for, man. When I'm deeply hurt, I go to my pop. And he encourages me. If you don't have a dad to run to in the world, you can come here and get one. You don't have a friend or a circle that, that appreciates you or whatever. I'm not saying to leave that circle, but you can come here and get appreciated. You can come here and get lifted up. You've made mistakes and you feel like, ah, I can't change that much because I have this rap sheet. You can come here and no one's going to ask you about that. Not just this church. I'm saying the church in general. 
Now, to be a part of this church, you also have to do the same for whoever walks through that door. That's what being a part of this family is like. In my house, you come stay with me. Man, you're welcome to come. My wife wants to make your bed and put up a sign for you or whatever. Over the years, you know, family comes by or whatever. I want you to go get what you want out of the refrigerator without asking me. Now, if you stay there for a couple days, you're going to have chores. Not because I'm mad that you're there, because I want you to feel like you're a member of a family when you're here. And when you're a part of this family, you do what the family does. And sometimes in God's family, we have to do weird and obscure things. But when you walk in the house of God, you're not seen as weird and obscure. You're a part of his family. That makes sense? So those who feel called to missions or those who feel called to do the crazy things, um, if you hear from God and you believe that it's true and, it's, and it calculates itself in the word, I'm not going to be against you. I'm going to be for you, no matter how crazy it sounds. Comprende? Right on. Okay, last piece here and then we're going to be done. Right and righteousness, before we get to that story, I want to talk about theology and devotion. We have a history in Christianity of false theology. We observed God. I mean, that's the observation of theos. The, the theology means to observe God, the study of. And we realize that he needs, he's so good, we have to be devoted to him. Now, our problem is that we've mixed up devotion. We don't know what that means. It used to be, man, we'd cut ourselves or we'd sacrifice our children. <laughs> then it was, would give up all of our all of our money, and that's what devotion looks like. And now today it looks like, man, you, you're you devoted to God if you have a master's in, in theology or if you travel the world in, in missions, whatever. We will never, enough education, enough doing stuff, enough getting up early in the morning or staying up late at night or sacrificing your children's or children or cutting yourself or the mass suicides we've seen in Christianity's history and all the crusades, all of that work and effort... One, it is not devotion. And two, it will never be as powerful as devotion. Devotion is exemplified by how Christ devoted himself. How Christ devoted himself to the Father looks like this. I'm not going to do it unless he says so. It looks like him in the garden saying, Lord, let this cup pass me by. And then him saying, your will be done. Devotion to God looks like saying, what you say I do, I will just do that. Now, it's going to kill your flesh, and it's going to be against every a lot of logic, and it's going to oppose what you think is right. And that's okay, because in exchange, you get righteousness. I'm going to read this, this piece to you uh, just real quick. This came to me this morning. Christ gave his devotion. The highest call of the Christian man is the same devotion to God. Our folly is today as the same as it's been in all of history. And the folly is simply this. Devotion is displayed by demonstration. This is a lie. God is on a mighty crusade, an elaborate mission. He's out to glorify himself to the audience he created. He is the main character. He is the lead role. And he is the one demonstrating to us, not the other way around. To be involved in this wonderful campaign of God, all we must do is devote our whole self to Him and His mission with one timeless truth in mind. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. 
Christianity is not all about what you have to give up to do this. And it's not all about that we get heaven in exchange. The very reason we were created is because God is worthy of glory. And He is the lead character. And He's the center role. And it's all about Him. And it's all to worship and praise Him. And He is the center of all things. We are not in the middle. He is. And the man who deserves to be in the middle went outside. And left it. Became nothing so that we might attain Him. Listen to me. What you get in exchange for realizing this simple truth that it's all about Him. It's not only this kingdom in heaven... Not only the power and and righteousness that he provides, but you get to be his kids. You get to be a part of the King of Kings family. And when you get that part, you get to have all that he's given to us. When Jesus died on the cross, it says in the Bible that he came into us, that we are in him and that he is in us. Some cool theology in there. But he didn't give us his pinky. Or like, you know, that's kind of weird, morbid stuff. He didn't cut up his body and just say, hey, I'll give out a piece to every person. He gave you the whole load. My son and my family is going to get everything I got. He's going to get all that I have. Everything that was in Christ Jesus is in you. That's a biblical fact. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells inside your mortal body. Because you're in his family. And to be in his family, we have to be a part of the family business. Obedience is demonstrated by Christ um, in the garden. Right before he was crucified. Just as I said. He wasn't trying to sacrifice himself. He was trying to listen to God and do what he was doing. We need to look at God constantly so that we can see what he's looking at. And we can see how he says it. I said this last week, but do you know what the word confession means? The word confession means to say the same thing that God says about something. If you say that this is a sin, I'm going to call it a sin. If you say this is good, I'm going to call it good. If you say this is unjust, that's what I'm going to say about it. We confess when we have been saying something about our life or our our sexual nature or our sin. We've been acting in such a way like God says about it something different. To confess is to say, no God, you've called it a sin, now I'm going to call it a sin. I'm going to say that it was wrong and I'm going to repent from it. We also have to confess in his power. That when we obey, all these things are added to us. Like in Acts chapter 2. Which brings me to my last point. Right and righteousness. Worship band, you guys can come up. Let's get ready for our offering, but I'll call you down. This week I um, was dealing with a situation. Uh, not a big one. We were in a meeting and there was something that was said that I thought wasn't right. And I weighed it. And it turned out I was right. So I did what the Bible said, you know, seek counsel of elders. And I went to an old guy in our church and I said, hey, this is what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is what I think. Tell me how I'm wrong. He says, you're not wrong. I said, right on. I'm going to go make this. I'm going to go set it right. He said, but I have a question for you. Are you righteous? I said, well, aren't they the same thing? He said, no, not always. It was wrong for Jesus to be crucified, but it was so righteous That we want to glorify ourselves by being right all the time. And he's saying, man, I just want you to lay yourself down and your own ability to be right. And I'm asking you to be righteous. The difference is, maybe it's not for me to say, this was wrong and I'm going to set it right. Maybe it's for me to go to the Lord and say, Lord, is this in me? 
is something wrong in me? Or should I say this? Or is this for you to do? Here's my step like, like I took and you're telling me that this is wrong. Okay, Lord, what's the next step? I can't just assume that now I have to go on some crusade to right all the wrongs in the world. It wasn't... They weren't God's... The nation of Israel weren't going to not be sons of God if they didn't celebrate the Feast of Booths. But they weren't going to be righteous without obeying what He says to do. They could have said, oh, tents aren't good enough. Let's sacrifice something. Let's really hurt for Jesus. And He's saying, that's not what I want, son. You may think that's right, but I want you to be righteous. The Bible says that when he, when, when, when we accept Jesus into our life, guess what we become? His righteousness. We become His right standing. That you don't have to work harder to get righteous. You don't have to go to more Bible studies to be righteous. You just have to listen to the very God that's inside of you. And you start to look more like Jesus. You start to say things that Jesus would say. Wisdom comes out of you like, man, that was awesome. And in my case, you tend to be a little bit more quiet when you're acting righteous. You don't pop up every time something is wrong to make it right. There's a difference between right and righteousness. Matthew 6.33 is the cross-reference for today. And it says this. It says that we must seek first His kingdom. And then guess what gets added to us in all these things? The word is, is collective, the whole thing. Don't worry about being right. Be righteous and the right will come. Don't worry about being rich. Be righteous. The riches will come. Don't worry about being good. Be the righteousness of God that is already in you. Because He is the only thing that is good. It'll come. And if your act of faith this week is to trust God by what He says, I promise you, it'll seem weird, it'll seem religious, it'll seem like tents in your backyard, but it will be righteous. And that's the thing that brings God joy. And like I said earlier, what's the point outside of that? So let's stand to our feet. Let's bring up the offering here. Does that make sense to us this morning? Does that help at all? We're going to take up our offering here. My hope is that you listen to the Lord on what you should give. What is as it was written? What does that say? Who do you need to give it to? I don't want you to be religious because of what you think is right. I want you to be righteous this morning. Bring God joy by your giving. Lord, we just thank you for your word, for your work. We hear, Lord, we're talking about all that we have to give and all that we have to sacrifice. You paid the ultimate cost for us. And so, Lord, we will never forget that. We praise you, and we pray that this offering is a praise to you. I pray that you are, are joyed by this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As the offering is going around, the Bible says, as it was written, that man is a sinner. We're messed up people, man. The Bible says that he's perfect and we're imperfect. And so we can't be together because we would make him imperfect. That's what sin does. That's why it separates us. He created us because he loves us. And he wants to spend time with us. But he can't because of our imperfection. He has to solve this problem. And he does so by sending his son to die on the cross and raise from the dead. He said that because he had no sin... He became sin, who knew no sin. And he did this because when he rose, he paid a penalty for us. He paid the debt.
debt that we could never pay. Now, the only way you need to get this debt, the only thing you have to do is believe. That's cool. You got to believe by faith. Now, faith, faith isn't reading a bunch of books. You don't know a lot and have faith. That's not what faith is. And it's not how you feel. Oh, sermon was good today. I'm full of faith. Faith, the true saving faith is trust. It's trusting God by taking your weight off of what you know to what he said. That's what faith is. And the Bible says that faith will bring you to heaven. Because it leads you to salvation. Now, the only way, this is how we're going to do faith this morning. Every eye shut, every head bowed. If you believe by faith, man, you want to make that decision. You want to trust in Jesus for your eternal salvation. If you want to do that this morning... All I want you to do is raise your hand. Maybe you've been far from him. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Okay, good. Oh, we just thank you for your word. For your saving act of righteousness in the earth. Lord, I thank you that we were made out of dust and stuffed full of grace. Lord, I pray that we would just listen to your word this morning. And then go do what you say. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and worship here, and we'll be back in just a second. So what can I say? And what can I do? But offer this heart, oh God, completely to you. So what can I say? So what can I say? What can I do? tonight and see us at Drake Road, 6 o'clock, for worship and prayer together. I pray that the Lord would bless you. I pray that His face would shine upon you. And that the light would hit your face in such a way that it would give you peace, unknown by me. I thank you, Lord, for your word and for your work. And it's because of you that we do all these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need to come to the front for prayer, feel free to do so. If you'd like to stay in worship, you can do that as well. Uh, but above all, we at ESS hope that you have a blessed week. Thanks so much for coming.